Well, welcome to a new day, Sunday, a new week, a new month, a new year, all in one. But the question is, are you new? Will there be anything new about you this year? And the answer is yes, if you will seek God's mercies that are new every morning. If you will make some decisions in your life in seeking God's will and following God's will, and that's what I want to talk about this morning in Psalm 143. We could call it a prayer for the new year, or we could call it receiving God's direction in critical times. It's a psalm of David, Psalm 143. Hear the word of God this morning. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant. It's a wonderful psalm, but I will mainly be looking at three lines of the psalm in verses 8 and 10 because my interest this morning is in having a prayer for the new year. It's a psalm that in many ways concerns the subject of divine guidance in life, something we all need, something that interests all of us. And especially at the beginning of a new year, people are thinking, you know, what's next? You know, what is my plan? Uh, what, What will I accomplish that is any different this year. That's what this psalm will guide us in. The psalms generally can be classified in what we call psalms of lament, 
their tearful songs, or their psalms of praise. They are songs or psalms of giving thanks to God. And both of them are equally important. There are times we lament because life is tough. And there are times that we praise because we are living with the sense that God is good. In an ideal world, even when life is tough, we should always be conscious that God is good. But sometimes it takes time to get there, and you see that in the Psalms where he will begin lamenting over the struggles, the difficulties, the oppression that he's facing in life, but eventually he will work his way to being reminded that even though life is tough, God is always good. And so ideally we hold both of these truths together. Life is tough. God is good. But we don't hold them with equal weight because the heavier, weightier thought is God is good all the time. The psalm, psalm writer is focused on the difficulty of his life. Look again at verse 3, how he describes it. The enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. He's experiencing the pressures of life. The psalm does not give us a context. You know, maybe it was when his son usurped the throne and drove him away when Absalom took over the kingdom and his dad was pursued. Or maybe it was when Saul was trying to kill David and David was driven into the wilderness. All we know is that it's a psalm of David in a difficult time in his life. And David, like all of us, faced areas of life in which there were often burdens. You know, the Apostle Paul, when you read his epistles, he normally talks about life in five different ways. He talks about your personal life, and sometimes there's struggles there. He talks about your family life, you know, your marriage, your children, your brothers, your sisters, and sometimes there's difficulties there. He talks about your work life and your church life and your civic life. And in all of what is called the pentathlon of life, in all of those areas, we can find that at times life is a struggle because there are always things touching our lives that I don't want, I didn't ask for, and I wish it would go away. And yet in God's providence, he allows us to live in times of desperation. And let me say we need those times of desperation. We need those times that we are crushed down when our enemies have pursued our very soul 
and when we feel like we have been buried alive in a grave from which there is no escape, we need those times of desperation because they cause us to cry out to God for mercy. It's good to feel the pressures of life. And I don't know what 2023 holds for any of us, but I know you will face trouble. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. In another place, he said, in the world you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I want to take a few moments to sort of give an overview of the psalm, the setting for the psalm, and then focus in the heart of the message on three phrases, three specific requests that have to do with receiving God's guidance in life. The psalm is nicely divided into three sections. You may have noticed when I read uh, the scripture that at the end of verse 6, I paused. I didn't read the word selah, but selah is an interlude. It's a time to pause. You know, the psalmist is saying, I've just said some very weighty things. Take some time to think about them and let them settle in your heart. And then in verse 11, in the Hebrew, it begins with what we call a purpose clause, and that is another section. So it's verses 1 through 6, 7 through 10, and then 11 to the end. Verses 1 through 6 I call the preparation for this prayer. Verses 7 through 10 is the prayer itself. And then verses 11 and 12 are the purpose of bringing that prayer to God. For a moment, just look at those first six verses with me. There's three couplets, verses 1 and 2, 3 and 4, 5 and 6. And in verses 1 and 2, the psalmist is revealing his humility. And let me say, this is, this is the foundation of our prayer. Listen again to his words. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my plea for mercy. In your faithfulness answer me. In your righteousness enter not into judgment with your servant for no one living is righteous before you. This is humility. He's not coming to God like the Pharisee did in the Gospels where he's pounding on his chest. He's making his presence known and he's telling God how much he deserves God's blessing in his life and how much God should be impressed with his life. And Jesus essentially says, that man got nothing. Nothing at all. Because God wasn't impressed with his righteousness. And the psalmist knows that. He realizes that his own righteousness is insufficient. He pleads for mercy, and he pleads for God to respond to him, not on the basis of his own goodness, 
but on the basis of God's righteousness. God, you are good. I'm not. I need mercy. This is the bottom line of our prayer. Verses 3 and 4 show us the psalmist's helplessness. Not only his humility, but his helplessness. Listen again to verses 3 and 4. The enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I hope you can feel, because that's what the Psalms are meant to do to us. That's why it's put in poetic form and uses so many images. It's trying to appeal not just to our mind, but to our feeling. This is a severe situation. He feels crushed to the ground. He feels like he has been banished to darkness. He's been incarcerated in a grave. You know, if you ever wanted to torture me, and you wouldn't want to do that, bury me alive. I mean, I am so claustrophobic. Somebody was asking me the other day, you know, why don't you go scuba diving with your brother-in-law? I said, I'm not putting myself in a situation where I might not be able to get all the air I want. I don't even want to sit by a window in an airplane with two other people blocking my escape to the aisle. Uh, he is oppressed. The very essence of his life, his soul, his spirit has been ripped out of him. He is discouraged, he is dismayed, he is helpless. But verses 5 and 6 show us the psalmist's hope. He says, I remember, here I am in this grave, in this darkness, in this oppression that is, that is crushing my soul, but I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. His difficult circumstances bring him to desperation and bring him to remembrance. He focuses his mind on the goodness of God. There is no promise in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the promise is to the contrary. There is no promise in the Bible that we will escape the troubles of life. The only promise is that the God who has walked with us in the past will find us in the midst of our troubles. And when we meditate and when we remember and when we ponder and consider, and when we stretch forth our hands to him, we will always find that there is a God who will pour cold water on the thirsty soul. That sets the basis for his prayer, his humility, his helplessness, and his hope. For a moment, jump to the end. Verses 11 and 12, which is the purpose of his prayer. 
For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. Because, for I am your servant. There are four requests and four bases for those requests. The four requests are preserve my life, bring me out of trouble, cut off my enemies, destroy my foes. And the four bases of those requests are your name, your righteousness, your steadfast love, three of them having to do with God himself. And then the fourth one is I am your servant. Let me say that God cares about all of it. He certainly cares about his name. He cares about his righteousness. He cares about his steadfast love. But he also cares about your confession. I am your servant. Now for the message this morning. A prayer for the new year. Verses 7 through 10 give us a number of requests, but I am looking basically at three of them. There are seven petitions that the psalmist gives. Answer me quickly. Hide not your face from me. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. Make me to know the way I should go. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. Teach me to do your will. Let your good spirit lead me. But I'm interested in these three that talk about our request for God's guidance. Make me to know the way I should go. Teach me to do your will. And let your good spirit lead me. For this new year, I'm asking that you pray this prayer for me because I will pray it for you. There are three things we need desperately from God in whatever situation we find ourselves in, but we're living in a world where you need this more than ever. Many of us grew up in a somewhat quasi-Christian world where the church was the center of society and people got up on Sunday morning, they went to church, and even if they weren't Christian, you know, they had an understanding of morality that was based on biblical principles. But we know the world we're living in is different, radically changing. And if you don't know how to walk, if you don't know God's way, then the likelihood is you will just be caught up with the current of the world and begin to walk just like everyone else is walking. And so his first request is a prayer to know how to walk. Make me know the way I should go. God, do something within me that I will become a true follower of Jesus Christ. Make me know, know the way. You know, we understand that early on, Christians were called 
the people of the way. Because it was obvious to those who looked at Christians that Christianity was more than just going to a temple, offering some sacrifices, going through some religious ceremony, and then getting back to the real business of life without any effect of worship on your daily life. No, they looked at Christians and they saw that their lives were changed, the way that they walked, the path that they chose to take was different than the rest of the world. Their morality was different. Their ministry was different. Their morality wasn't based on what is the majority opinion of the world today. The morality was based on Jesus said, I am the truth. Listen to me. Make me to know the way I should go. God has a design for all of our lives. And in some way, the most basic way, his design for our lives is the same. You read scripture, I read scripture, and what God is saying to me and intended to say to me, he says to you. You know, when he says, husbands, love your wives, that's for John, and that's for Tom, and that's for Gary, and for every other husband. There's no exceptions to that. There's not one Christian husband on earth who is exempted from the responsibility to love his wife. And if you don't know that, and sometimes new Christians don't know that, you sit with them and say, you know, here's what the Bible says that a husband should do. There's only one really clear responsibility for husbands. Love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Wow, that's what I'm supposed to do. I thought I was supposed to boss her around. I thought I was supposed to be the chief, you know, the head. I said, no, 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 no. God never tells you to be the head. He tells your wife that you're the head. But he doesn't tell you to be thinking about you're the head. He tells you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Show me the way. In some way, again, it's the same for all of us. But then we understand that even though the road we're on is the same, going the same direction that sometimes the individual lanes, they're different. Because how my wife needs to experience love may be different, and probably is, than how your wife needs to experience love. And so when I'm praying, God, show me the way, I'm not just asking for the objective truth of Scripture, I'm asking for the subject of wisdom of how to apply this in everyday life. When it says, don't steal, well, it doesn't simply mean, you know, don't go to uh, the local bank and do a hold up. You know, if you're a carpenter, it means one thing. If you're an accountant, it means another thing. We ask God for wisdom. How do I apply the moral principles of Scripture that, that are for every believer, but how do I 
have the wisdom to apply it in the situation where I am. God, show me the way. Now, why would I want that? I should want it because He created me. The sovereign and wise God of the universe created me. But more than that, He redeemed me and claims me. He tells me, you are not your own. You were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which belong to God. Again, like the psalmist, we may find ourselves in difficult circumstances in 2023. But what will guide us through those circumstances is a prayer and a heart that is always longing for God to show me the way, make me know the way that I should go. God has a design for your life. And I love the ground of his request, the basis of this request. God answered this prayer because I lift up my soul unto you. As one commentator says, the Hebrew word for soul depicts the seat of all of the tumultuous longings and desires, the seekings and the yearning of humanity. It's that part of you that, that because of the fall, it's inadequate, it's dependent, and it's needy. And the psalmist realizes that there is this desire in my soul that can only be satisfied by you making me to know the way that I should go. But this is not just an intellectual pursuit for the psalmist. It's not simply that he wants to know. He wants to have more knowledge. But the second prayer in verse 10, the first part of verse 10, is a prayer for, I'll call it discipline, to do the will of God. If the first request has to do with God's design, the second request has to do with the discipline, the training, the teaching that God brings into our life so that we will become obedient. The psalmist is not living simply for self-fulfillment. He says, I want to do your will. Of course, that's another way of saying, show me the way. I want to do your way. I want to obey your word. But he uses a particular word that, that softens it. He's actually saying, I want to do what pleases you. I just don't want rote obedience. I want to do what pleases you. I want to live in a way that pleases God. First John talked about that when John said that, that we not only 
keep his commandments, but we do the things that are pleasing in his sight. We don't just say, all right, I've, I have followed rotely and rigidly uh, the word of God, the law, and I'm done. I'm done. It's like the husband who says, all right, I, I did the, finish the list that you gave me to do. Are you happy? No, did you do anything without me asking you? that would have made me happy. God not only wants us to keep his commandments, John puts it in the context that he hears our prayers because we keep his commandments and we do the things that are pleasing in his sight. God, what, what pleases you? All right, so you... You tell me I, I should worship on the Lord's day. I'll do that. But you know what? I'm going to get there early. The Bible doesn't tell me to get there early. I'm going to greet people. I'm going to make people feel welcome. I'm going to prepare my heart. I'm going to do things that God doesn't require, but I think God would smile upon The psalmist is dependent upon God not only for the revelation of his will, but for learning how to do what is pleasing in his sight. And note the ground of this request. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. You're not just God. You're my God. There's a relationship with it there that we know through the coming of Jesus Christ that that is only possible because Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven and made the way open so that you and I can come with boldness before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help. You are my God. This is a confession of relationship. It's a confession of allegiance, of loyalty. I'm concerned about doing the will, not of the gods of this world, not of the gods that, that, that may hold space, uh, places of privilege in this world. I am concerned with doing the will of my God. And of course, that's being like Jesus. Because Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in another place he said, my food, my meat, what I thrive on in life is to do the will of him who sent me. And as Gary preached a few weeks ago, Jesus was so committed to doing the will of his Father that he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So we understand then why Jesus would say to his disciples one day, to that mass of 
people that was following him. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? It's incongruous for you to say I'm a Christian. But my heart's desire is not to know the way I should walk and to do the will of the one who has redeemed me. The third prayer. Not only a prayer to know the way we should walk, a prayer that God would teach us to do what is pleasing for him, but the third part of the prayer is a prayer for divine assistance. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. So if the first request is a matter of design and the second is a matter of discipline, I'll call this one a matter of dynamic. How do we do this? How do we walk the way that we should walk? How do we do the will of Him? How do we do the things that, that please Him? The psalmist says, lead me, and the Hebrew word has the idea of lead me with care. It's the same idea we find in Psalm 23. He leads me besides still waters. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. But the he there is the shepherd. This is what shepherds ought to do. Shepherds bring sheep to the cool flowing waters of the stream so they can drink and shepherds lead sheep to fresh grass so that they can feed and shepherds lead sheep to places of safety. But not all shepherds do. But the good shepherd, the good spirit will always lead you on level ground. Some trans translations translate this as the land of uprightness. Lead me on the land of uprightness. But I like the literal translation. It's like when Reuben, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, was looking for a portion of land that they could claim as their inheritance. They wanted level ground. They wanted ground that was free from obstructions. They didn't want mountainous, unplantable territory. They wanted level ground. And this is what the psalmist is looking for because he knows, as the songwriter wrote, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Or we could say prone to stumble, prone to stray. We know that life has so many obstacles and pitfalls out there. A good reread of the Pilgrim's Progress would remind you of all of the things that are faced as you travel this journey to the eternal city. 
And so the prayer is, God, lead me in a place where I will not stumble, where I, where I will not stray from you. And it's a request for a life that is spirit-led, a life that knows the conviction of the Holy Spirit, a life that receives the instruction of the Holy Spirit, a life that constantly experiences the work in one's soul so that my mind and my heart is inclined to seeking God, that my thoughts go more to God than to self. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. The good spirit. His nature is good. His will is good. His guidance is good. Even his conviction of your sin is good. And his pointing you to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ is good. The Holy Spirit is a good spirit. May your spirit lead me on level ground. Three simple requests. God, I want to know, cause me to know the way that I should walk. Teach me to do what is pleasing to you. And may your good spirit guide me in such a way that I avoid all those pitfalls in life that I might lead a life that is pleasing to you. That's my prayer for you this year. Make it your prayer for each other. Please make it your prayer for me. God will answer that prayer. He'll answer it because Jesus died. He rose again. He ascended to heaven. And right now, he's praying for you and for me. Let's pray together. Father, cause us to know the way that we should walk. May that be our daily, constant prayer. Teach us to do what is pleasing to you. Give us hearts that are filled with a generous love, a generous gratitude for all that you have done for us in Christ. Lead us by your good spirit on level ground. God, bring us to repentance of our self-sufficiency and to a renewed dependence on your spirit to fill us, to guide us, to teach us, to walk with us, to sustain us, to empower us, to convict us, to point us to Jesus Christ. Guide us by your good spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.